0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, August 2nd, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 1 through chapter 48, verse 10. Jeremiah continues to proclaim the Lord's judgments against foreign nations. Today, we hear the Lord's word to the Philistines and the first part of his word to the Moabites. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstott, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here again.
0: Pastor Ill, as we get started, let's talk a little context. The previous chapter, chapter 46, started a new section in the book of Jeremiah. And we see a little bit here again of how Jeremiah is not arranged strictly chronologically within this section. So as we prepare to look at chapter 47 and part of 48 today, uh, what do we need to know about the arrangement of Jeremiah and the section that we're looking at today?
1: So Jeremiah... uh, has probably been been reordered a little bit in terms of uh, certain prophecies being with other certain prophecies. So if you think all the way back to Jeremiah, say 29 and 30, 31, those things are talking about things that would happen uh, around the time that the people of Judah were taken into exile in Babylon. That happened in about 586 BC. But Our text for today probably is addressing events that happened between 605 and 610 B.C. That would be about 30 years before uh, those previous chapters. And so uh, every once in a while in Jeremiah, we need to keep an eye on when was this prophesied and when were these events that Jeremiah was prophesying to take place? And then here in chapters 46 through 52, we have a new section. Uh, so after 45, there's kind of a break, and then comes this idea of a set of prophecies against the nations, uh, including Egypt and Moab and Philistia and, and ultimately Babylon. And as we think about all of that, it parallels a lot of other times when uh, prophets would prophesy against the nations that surrounded God's people. Isaiah did this and Amos did this just like uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and it is a a pretty characteristic thing for God's prophets to to address this um, so uh, there might be a little bit more you want to you want to talk about. Uh, in specifics, but that's kind of a broad picture uh, context for us and where we fall in Jeremiah today in chapters 47 and 48.
0: Before we get into too many specifics, let's talk a little more generally about Jeremiah turning here to address the foreign nations. Again, most of this likely coming before the fall of Jerusalem. When we get to Moab, there's some question as to when some of that does, But, but with the Philistines, it does seem, yeah, that comes you know, a good 30 years, maybe 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem. But but more generally, when Jeremiah and other prophets turn to address the foreign nations, as we see Jeremiah doing here today and throughout this section, why, why is it that they do that? And what what do we do with that as Christians? I think we're used to reading the Old Testament and understanding, okay, the Lord's talking to Israel, which has been fulfilled in the church. That's who we are as Christians. And so we, we're, I think we have an easier time taking that and using it. But when we see Jeremiah and the prophets addressing the foreign nations, it may seem a little strange to us. Why does the Lord have the prophets do that? and And what do we do with those words today?
1: One of the things that is stressed when these ideas of judgment against the foreign nations shows up, is the emphasis that this is the Lord's doing. This isn't just the coming and going of nations. Sometimes we think kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and that's just the way that things are. But here in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is clear, just like Isaiah and Amos and Ezekiel are clear, that this is the Lord's doing. Uh, This is not something that happens by happenstance, but the Lord is judging those foreign nations just like he judges his people Israel and Judah. And when the Lord rises against Israel and Judah, we recognize he is judging them. And when this is seen, this is the Lord's doing, and that calls us to repentance and faith. It reminds us even of Jesus' words from Luke 13, when he talks about uh, the people who were killed when the tower in the uh, neighborhood of Siloam fell in Jerusalem, who were killed. They weren't worse sinners than anybody else. But when you see this kind of a tragedy, you repent and believe so that nothing worse may happen to you. I think that the other thing worth noting here is that the Lord has not forgotten his people. He is going to punish even the people that he uses to punish his people. So the punishers get punished. And in the midst of that, the Lord is still the one who remembers and fights for his people, even while he has the audacity not to sneak up on the foreign nations, but to prophesy to them, I am going to do this to you because of your lack of faith. And I want everybody to know this is my work, not just happenstance. That's why I'm telling you about it beforehand. And so that's exactly what happens. The Lord remembers his people, calling them to repentance and faith. And even in his prophecy and in his actions, he is calling those foreign nations of Philistia and of Moab to faith as well.
0: I like what you said there about that the Lord's not sneaking up on these foreign nations. I think that's a a helpful thing to keep in mind that when the Lord shows himself to be the one true God, it shouldn't come as a surprise to them because he has provided for the proclamation of his word to them. I'm reminded of the way that Isaiah speaks of the people of Israel, that they were to be that light to the nations. And even Jeremiah, we've noted this several times on the show, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the nations, not just to Judah. So that when we see these oracles against the foreign nations, and even, you know, sometimes that's the preposition that gets used, oracles against the foreign nations. And certainly there is quite a bit of judgment as we have seen and will continue to see, but it's not just against them, it's to them. And in some cases, very specifically, I think we could say for them, as you said, the Lord desires these foreigners as well to come to repentance. And faith in Him, and so He's not going to sneak up on them, but He is going to provide for His prophets to have proclamation to them, so that they know that as they see, for example, Judah be punished by Babylon, that they're not getting off apart from judgment. That the Lord sees their sins and will hold them accountable, but also is going to send the Savior for them as well. And I, I think in that way that you know these texts where we're going to, I mean, particularly when we get to Moab, we're going to be reading some very strange names, places that we may not even know where they are all the time anymore. Why is this important for us as Christians? It is a reminder that the Lord is calling all people to himself, calling all to repentance for their sins and ultimately to faith in Christ for their salvation.
1: Indeed. And it's helpful also, I think, to remember that Philistia where the Philistines live, and Moab are two of the most prominent enemies of Israel and Judah throughout the Old Testament. Uh, If you think back to the days, well, even to the days when Moses and the people are coming into the promised land, they are traveling through Moab and they end up fighting against the Moabites even before they enter into Jericho and into the promised land. Uh, The Philistines are there and they end up doing battle with the Philistines as well. And in the days of the judges, we remember that uh, for a while, Moab had risen up against the people of Israel and they were paying uh, taxes and tributes to them, um, especially in the days of King Eglon. Uh, This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories where God delivered uh, Israel from uh, King Eglon and the Moabites by having a left-handed man, Ehud, uh, stabbed the very fat king in the belly and the, the fat of his belly swallowed up the sword and he died. And It's a great story, An- another time. Um, but we also remember that the <laughs> Philistines battled against the Israelites as well. Uh, and Goliath of Gath, uh, well, Gath is a city in uh, Philistia, and he was a Philistine. And through the days after the judges of uh, King Saul and King David, the Philistines were the primary enemies of God's people. And so this is a long-lasting uh, culmination that comes here as the Lord declares that he will destroy Moab and he will destroy Philistia uh, This has been going on for hundreds and thousands of years. This isn't new, uh, these battles and these fights. Uh, And it's really important to say that it is God who is still fighting for his people, uh, not even forgetting those things that have happened so long ago in the past.
0: Yeah, certainly these two nations, Philistia and Moab, are among the chief enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament. I think uh, for for most Christians, the Philistines come to mind very easily because in this, the account of David and Goliath... Goliath is a Philistine. The, the Philistine army is the that's who Israel's fighting at the moment, and that's one of the most well-known accounts in the Old Testament. So I think Philistia comes to mind pretty quickly. And Moab too, you mentioned the, the account there in Judges chapter three. It is a great account. Go, go read it. Or and, and you can listen to the Sharper Iron study we did on that last year sometime. It, it was great, a great text, as you said. Both of these are, are known to be enemies of god's people and and certainly the judgment that's pronounced upon them in that sense is unsurprising i, I also thought of this pastor Il, you know given that as we've been saying there's also an uh, an aspect in which the lord is desiring to reach out to these people that they too would repent and believe in him as the one true god in the old testament uh, when you think of moab in addition to all of the accounts of their enmity with israel there is that one account in the book of Ruth where you have a Moabitess, Ruth is from Moab, who comes and joins the people of Israel and it actually ends up in the line of Christ. And so you, you do see Moab as an example of, at least in that very important case, someone from that nation does come to faith in the God of Israel. I'm having trouble thinking if there's ever a case of anyone from the Philistines doing so. The closest I could come, just off the top of my head, is I think there's a while when David is running away from Saul where he hides among the Philistines and they provide him at least a little bit of protection but I can't think of any examples where a Philistine comes to faith in Christ I suppose there's that account in in 1 Samuel where they they, they capture the ark of the covenant and they realize that, that Dagon their god can't stand before the ark and they have to send the the ark back uh, maybe as a recognition at least in part that the Lord is the only god but I can't I can't think of of any really hard examples like Ruth, where a Philistine comes to faith in Christ. I don't know, What do you think, Pastor El? Yeah.
1: Um, I also don't recall any times when, when a Philistine uh, comes to faith. There are times when they confess that the Lord is God and that their gods, especially Dagon, that's the main idol of the Philistines, can't stand there. Uh, that story that you, or the account that you mentioned of uh, the Philistines who had captured the ark Uh, That was when, uh, Samuel, the prophet died and, uh, the ark was captured. They, they took it in and set the ark of the covenant that God had instructed for Moses to build, to be set in their temple. And three times their idol Dagon fell down in front of it. Um, and the people got sick. And so they sent it back on a cart, uh, they even made uh, golden tumors, uh, you know, like cancerous tumors, and sent them back with the Ark of the Covenant uh, back to the people of Israel. Um, and so they recognize that the Lord works, but I don't, I don't know of any individuals who who confessed their faith and joined the Lord's people.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, so again, we see just as we're we're talking here about this Old Testament that F- Fili- Philistia. And Moab both have a long history of interaction with the people of Israel, one primarily of enmity, and yet we see in, in words like we'll encounter today, and and again throughout these oracles to the nations, that the Lord does desire that these nations would come to repentance and faith in Him. So, Pastor L, chapter forty-seven is centered in, Apple, on I the have judgment one more deep against thought the. Before, oh, please, please! Uh, I'm uh, always interested. We should in your probably deep thoughts.
1: resolve we should probably resolve a little bit of geography because if you've oh, been hearing thank you. us, yes. uh, speak about Philistia and Moab, uh, you may be wondering, well, that's all nice and good, but where are these places? Uh, Philistia is to the kind of west-southwest of Jerusalem, and it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, one of the main cities uh, of uh, of Philistia is the city of Gaza. The ancient city of Gaza is in the modern-day Gaza Strip, uh, if that helps to to kind of locate it. Uh, So it's kind of between Egypt uh, and just north of Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea. Moab, on the other hand, is to the east of Judah, And Judah and Moab have the Dead Sea kind of as the border between them. But they would go around to the north and around to the south uh, to harass God's people, uh, Israel and Judah. And so in the middle of this, uh, Judah and Jerusalem are kind of a Philistia and Moabite sandwich, if you will, where they're located right in the middle of these two opposing nations, uh, if that's a helpful way to think about it.
0: It is, and I appreciate you giving us the geography there from the get-go that, again, Philistia is along the Mediterranean coast to the west of Judah, and Moab is on the other side of the Dead Sea from Judah. So yeah, we've got Judah as a sandwich between the two of them. And just generally speaking, in terms of this section of Jeremiah... You'll recall that in chapter forty-six, which we covered previously, we were talking about Egypt, which is of course to the to south and farther west. So, generally speaking, these oracles against the nations that we're seeing in Jeremiah are working their way from the west toward the east, and then kind of north until ultimately you get over to Babylon. So there's there's a geographical movement in these oracles of the nations, and we see it it in today's text as well. So chapter forty-seven, Pastor Ill, is the this is against Philistia. And in this first verse, let's talk a little bit more about the historical setting, because as you mentioned from the get-go, we're not in a strict chronological order here in the book of Jeremiah, particularly in this section. Chapter 47, verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Now, given what's there in that verse and, and what we will see going forward, and we'll read that in a little bit, uh, what kind of historical context might we be looking at for this judgment on the Philistines in chapter 47?
1: So this is where we get into some uh, historical resources that aren't in Scripture properly uh, that happened between about 610 BC and 605 BC. Um, after the Assyrian Empire fell, the remaining Assyrians and the Egyptians went in together, and they started uh, a series of battles. Some were in Philistia, some were up uh, closer to Babylon Uh, along the Euphrates River, uh, what we might call the Fertile Crescent today, so uh, to the northeast of Jerusalem uh, quite a bit. Uh, But as they are having these battles, uh, the army of, uh, sorry, the army of uh, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar II came down and crushed the army of Pharaoh and the Assyrians who were with him um, at a place called Carchemish. So you have this this battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, and it seems like this uh, prophecy is given uh, before that because the Lord speaks before uh, Pharaoh and the Philistines who were often in league with them. Uh, were crushed. And so uh, that locates us in time, and it shows us some of the, uh, there's always kind of this uh, three-cornered ancient Near East uh, battle going on between Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. And sometimes one is stronger, sometimes another is stronger. Um, Usually, uh, God's people Wanted to, uh, and the, the kings that were serving them wanted to throw their influence in with one or the other instead of trusting in the Lord to deliver them. Uh, but that's what's going on uh, as we pick up with Jeremiah 47 1.
0: So, right, the historical context is sometime around the Battle of Carchemish, which we talked a little bit about this in Jeremiah chapter 46 as well, because there in, in forty-six two, when you're talking about the judgment of Egypt, actually the, the name Carchemish is mentioned there. That's the, the context for chapter 46, and likely that context carries over here in 47. What I find, I think, important is that the Philistines really they kind of find themselves sandwiched between these two greater empires. On the one hand, you've got Egypt to the south and to the west. And on the other hand, you've got Babylon to the east and to the north. And and Philistia is kind of stuck in the middle as this small nation along the Mediterranean coast, much like Judah and Moab and some of these other nations in the area really are. They're kind of sandwiched between these two greater powers. And and within this oracle, it, in verse 47, verse 1, you've got Pharaoh being the one striking at Philistia. And as we'll see as the text continues, we've got Babylon also going to be the enemy against Philistia. And I think Babylon is the one that's really the, the bigger enemy in this case, which is, of course, is true historically is as the, they win that Battle of Carchemish that you mentioned and are the ones to, to dominate a lot of this region for the time. But it, I think it's it's worth noting that Egypt too there in the south and, and to the west is also this this danger to the Philistines as well. Any more thoughts on, on the historical context or any response to that, Pastor L, before I read the rest of chapter 47?
1: Nope. I, no, I, I don't right. have any more thoughts on that right now.
0: All right. So we're picking up now Jeremiah 47, verse 2. Thus says the Lord Behold, waters are rising out of the north, and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail. At the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels, the fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands. Because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftar. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? He has appointed it. That's the rest of Jeremiah chapter 47. So pastor L in verse two, after that historical note in verse one about the context before Pharaoh struck down Gaza, then in verse two, we get waters rising out of the North. What's, what's the Lord telling the Philistines here?
1: Uh, not only do they need to be worried about the Egyptians in the south, but they have uh, the challenge also from the north. Uh, and I see a, I see a bit of a, of a wordplay or a pun. Here you have uh, seacoast people in Philistia, mm-hmm. and the waters are coming from the north. It's going to be an overflowing uh, torrent, and the, essentially they'll be drowned. Um And everyone in Philistia is going to be affected by this as they are caught uh, between, like you said before, in a sandwich between the north and the south, between Babylon and Egypt as they're fighting against each other. Um, And... Philistia is going to take, as the Lord says, a huge loss in this. And so here come the chariots and the the stallions and the calvaries, uh, even to the point where fathers don't want to look back at their children because they know what's happening to them and they don't want to see it. They aren't going to be able to stop this or protect themselves. Uh, defeat and destruction is going to come to Philistia one way or another as the as Babylon and Egypt are going to fight this out. And this is God's punishment against the people of Philistia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like, they will uh, be, Oh, go ahead. Well,
0: I was just say that, that you mentioned, the, uh, you know, a little bit of a pun there with the waters are rising out of the North with them being a seacoast people. I hadn't really thought about the seacoast people, but I think, I think you're right with that. It, it also struck me that in the previous, the the judgment on Egypt, Egypt was compared to the Nile River, whose, you know, waters rise with an annual flood. And yet here it's the waters that are rising from the north that are from Babylon. And unlike the Egyptian flood, which, you know, the flood of the Nile is what brought the the prosperity to that land, you know, very fertile soil there in the Nile Delta because of those regular floods, this flood that's coming out of the north is coming to destroy them. And again, with them being a seacoast people, you know, like water, water all around them coming to destroy to destroy. Uh, it's just, I, again, I, I think the imagery there is, is quite striking and particularly for the people of Philistia, as you said on the sea coast, it really would have been quite a, a terrible thing for them to hear. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead.
1: Um, and I think it is also really helpful to notice there in the last half of verse four, it says, for the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Uh, there is no question about who is doing this. At the end of the day, it's not, oh, you guys didn't raise a big enough army to protect yourselves from the Egyptians and the Babylonians. This isn't about the Egyptians are mighty or the Babylonians are mighty. No, this is the Lord's work. And it is the Lord who is going to uh, destroy the Philistines. It is the Lord who is bringing judgment. uh, And this prophecy is very, very clear. This isn't happenstance. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't a run of bad luck. This is the Lord doing this intentionally and on purpose.
0: Yeah, that that last phrase there, verse four, is a very important thing to remember for this part of the judgment against the Philistines and really for this whole section, that this is the Lord at work because he is the God over all the nations, the king over all the earth, and he is exercising his judgment upon them, again, in hopes of bringing them to repentance and faith. And we're going to catch more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking with pastor peter ill this morning about jeremiah 47 and 48 we'll be right back please stick around Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 2nd. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 1 through chapter 48, verse 10 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were looking at the judgment against the Philistines. And we left off in, in verse 5, where the prophet says that baldness has come upon Gaza. What's what's the... Why baldness? Why does that matter?
1: Um, so... Uh, and for a second, I want to switch to the ESV or to the NIV translation, uh, where it says, "Gaza will shave her head in mourning." Uh, this mm-hmm. was a sign that was done when people in the ancient Near East, including the people of Israel and Judah, would come into bad news when they were grieving—be it grieving death or grieving the loss of a battle or of, of bad news. They would go shave their heads. Um, Having, having hair on your head was considered a sign of honor. Uh, and so any kind of a bald, uh, you were only bald when things were bad. And so they would shave their heads. Um, and it goes on to talk about how the city of Ashkelon will be silent or will, be, uh, will perish. I kind of prefer the uh, silenced translation there because... When bad news comes, it was common to shave your head and sit there in the silence. Uh, these were ancient Near Eastern grieving practices that were practiced uh, in Philistia and in Israel and Judah. Uh, we even see Job in uh, the book of Job. When terrible things happened to him, he shaved his head, he sat in the dust, and he was quiet. His friends came and they sat in the dust with him, and all of them were quiet for seven days before they started talking to each other. Uh, And so these are the common signs of grief that something terrible has happened, uh, that the Lord is the one bringing judgment on uh, the cities of Gaza and Ashkelon, the two major cities of Philistia. And then it even goes on to uh, a third sign of mourning, where it asks, O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Or how long will you cut yourselves? Uh, This idea of of religious cutting was practiced still in the ancient Near East, uh, when bad things happened, so that your gods would notice and come to your aid. Uh, We can think about this when... Uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal are having their showdown of the gods, they're on top of Mount Carmel. Uh, When the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves, uh, hoping that their god will see what they're doing, and so they are cutting themselves, uh, trying to show that this is uh, something that their gods should be paying attention to. Uh, Apparently, them cutting themselves is going to get their god to have compassion on them even though it doesn't seem to work throughout the Old Testament that way.
0: In verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, it looks like we're returning to that same thing you highlighted for us at the end of verse 4, that the Lord is destroying the Philistines. Verses 6 and 7 talk about the sword of the Lord being responsible, again, for what's happening to the Philistines.
1: Yeah, and I... I have to admit, I have a hard time uh, trying to figure out, uh, I think there is some interaction here, like it's, you know, on the one hand, you want to say, but the response is, uh, but I have a hard time kind of parsing that out. Uh, Hebrew doesn't use quotation marks. And so it's kind of hard to to figure that out. But this idea of of addressing the sword of the Lord uh, is really kind of remarkable. Uh, and throughout scripture, usually when when there's any talk of a sword, it includes the idea of vengeance and judgment. And so as the question gets asked, ah, sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. But then it seems that the response comes, well, that's not how things work. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it, that is his sword, a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore he has appointed it? Uh, in other words, Philistines, don't be confused. This isn't just bad luck. This is the Lord bringing his judgment against you uh, because the Lord has judged you and is punishing you and is carrying this out. Uh, this is... Uh, very intentional on the Lord's part and he cares. He cares for you to call you to repentance and he cares for his people that he will come and fight on their side, even against you.
0: Having spoken that way to the Philistines, the Lord next turns to speak against the Moabites. And so we, we pick up the first part of the Oracle against the Moabites today, pastor L the, the text for Against Moab is the longest of the oracles against the nations, other than Babylon. So it is a, it is a lengthy oracle that's spoken to Moab. We're going to pick up the first ten verses. This morning, we've already talked a little bit about the the context geographically and some of the history between the people of Israel and the people of Moab throughout the Old Testament. In terms of the historical setting that we've got before us with the judgment on Moab, Pastor Ill, is there anything there that gives us an indication as to when this might have been spoken?
1: Not that I've really been able to find. Uh, Moab, much like Philistia, is going to be, and and Judah as well, are going to be caught in this battle between Egypt and Babylon. But I don't know of any more specific references that speak to uh, to the Moabite oracle.
0: Hmm. That that was the the same in, in terms of what I had found as well. And ultimately, uh, both the Philistines and the Moabites, like Judah, are conquered by Babylon in those you know five. 80s BC as well. So again, that that broader context of Jeremiah is is helpful as we look at this judgment against Moab. So again, we're picking up the first 10 verses of Jeremiah 48 this morning. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. Kiriathim is put to shame, it is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon, they planned disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O oh madmen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. A voice, a cry from Horonaim, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. For at the descent of Horonaim they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourselves you will be like a juniper in the desert. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. The destroyer shall come upon every city, and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her cities shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed That again is Jeremiah 48 verses 1 to 10 The very first part of the judgment on Moab that the prophet speaks So Pastor Ill, there's a lot here Lots of very, again, tragic, terrible images That are brought to bear by the prophet What are some of the highlights? What do we need to see in these 10 verses from Jeremiah 48?
1: Um, I think that it it's remarkable that uh, it starts with this, woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. And you might start thinking back to other places where Nebo shows up in the Old Testament. Uh, One of the most significant places is it is Mount Nebo that Moses climbs, and he looks out from Mount Nebo across the Jordan River to see the promised land. And that is where uh, Moses died. And and then from there the Lord buried him. And so uh, that kind of locates it geographically for us. Uh, But it talks about how uh, the cities and the fortresses are put down. It also talks about how in verse 2 it says the renown of Moab is no more. And it talks a little bit later in uh, verse 7 about the Moabites' works and treasures. Uh, There, Uh, the Moabites were continually uh, prophesied against and known for uh, their arrogance and their pride and their self-assurance. And this has kind of a particular approach that, oh, you thought that your works were good? You thought that you were kind of the crown jewel of the peoples around you? Well, watch this. Uh, You aren't really that important and you really don't have that much to be proud of, uh, you will be laid waste. Um, Also in verse 7, it talks about how uh, Chemosh shall go into exile with his priests and officials. Uh, Chemosh is the main idol of the Moabites. We had talked before with the Philistines uh, and their god Dagon. Now we have the Moabites and their god Chemosh. Not only is the Lord prophesying against Uh, the Philistines and the Moabites for their actions and for their their human interactions. But he is also, uh, if you will, dragging their idols into this, saying, oh yeah, you think that you have idols who are going to care for you and protect you? Well, look at what happened to Dagon. Look at what happened to Chemosh. Um, I have destroyed them just as I have destroyed you and your idols can't save you. Real faith is faith in me, not in your idols.
0: That preaching of the first commandment is such a a common thing in the Old Testament. And we do well to see it. I think there is a, there's maybe a tendency, you know, we we talk a lot about sins or, or, you you know, things that we do that are wrong. And, and I think, you know, like in the news today and, and even in our own lives, we, we're we so quick to identify those sins. And that's not wrong. and you know, We should examine our lives according to the Ten Commandments. But over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, the scriptures teach us to examine our lives first and foremost according to the first commandment. And we saw that in Jeremiah's preaching against the people of Judah you know, throughout this book so far. And it's amazing how often we see it in his preaching toward these foreign nations as well, that, that first and foremost, among the problems that these foreign nations have is their idolatry. And, and here we're, we're going to see this, this condemnation of Chemosh and the worship of him throughout this Oracle of Moab into the text that we'll pick up tomorrow as well. But I think that's that's such an important point to make and, and that we we shouldn't miss that so that when we look at our own lives and we examine them according to the Ten Commandments, that we never fail to see how all of it ends up going back to ultimately the problem of idolatry, of having a false God, of of trusting that false God instead of the Lord. Pastor Earl, can you can you say a little bit more about that first commandment and how our how we need to examine our lives according to that commandment and, and see idolatry as that primary problem?
1: Pastor Luther, in, the, in his large catechism, I, I think most folks are familiar with, uh, with Martin Luther's small catechism, but his large catechism, uh, when it starts to talk about the first commandment and about idolatry, uh, kind of answers the question, what is a god? And he says, a god is whatever you look to in a time of trouble. Or by paraphrase, whenever things are bad, when the chips are down and you need help, where do you look to for help? Uh, and I would imagine that most of our listeners this morning would say that they don't turn to Dagon and they don't turn to Chemosh. They don't turn to, to any other little statue or uh, fertility god of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites uh, that were also in that area in the ancient Near East. But we do often find when uh, things are difficult, where is it that we want to go today? So often, we want to go to ourselves. Well, I don't know what got me into this mess, we might say, but I can get me out of it. A little bit of elbow grease and a little bit of good hard work and a little bit of just accepting uh, the difficulties, I'll be able to get through this. But we don't have that kind of autonomy or self-sufficiency. Our help can't come from inside us. And thinking that our help can come from inside us is just as invalid and just as useless as the idea that the statue of Chemosh or the statue of Dagon is going to be able to deliver you and protect you. The Lord who judges Chemosh and Dagon and the idolatry of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites as well, and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, is the same God who judges me for my idolatry. Um, another saying uh, is that the, the heart, my own, my own heart, is an idol factory. Uh, and I, I appreciate that because I see how quickly I and uh, the Christians around me want to turn to make things uh, into what we can control. And so even if we're not going to make a little statue of wood or out of stone, uh, we will generate our own idols that we look to when things are difficult. And so often, according to ourselves, that is not the Lord our God. That's not God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. No, I'd rather take care of myself in my sinfulness, or I would rather look to this person or that person to help me in my time of need. Uh, Trusting in God, that comes from outside of me, and I don't I don't want to trust anything outside of me. I want to. I want to trust according to my own rules.
0: Pastor Ellen, in verse nine of chapter forty-eight, which in the ESV reads, "Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away." Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some words in hebrew there that are a little bit difficult to translate and maybe have a, a couple other options that if if our if we're looking in a different english translation we might see something like uh, salting there what's what's going on there in in 48 and 9 what are the what's going on with the hebrew and and the ways it gets translated into english
1: sure uh, every once in a while when we study hebrew as an ancient language there are some words that didn't have a whole lot of use in the Bible and we're not exactly sure what to what to do with them and to be honest we we kind of guess um, and verse 9 has some of those words uh, and so like you said uh, in the English standard version that we've been reading this morning it says give wings to Moab for she would fly away but the new international version version says put salt on moab for she will be laid waste um, and there are some things about that, that idea of putting salt on Moab that I, I prefer. It makes a little more sense to me. In the ancient Near East, when a city was destroyed, commonly salt would be put down to affect the, uh, the pH levels and the acidity in the soil. And by doing that, they would ensure that nothing would grow there so it can't be resettled until that salt had been completely washed away, something that would take years. Um, this is very uh, parallel to uh, Matthew chapter 5, when uh, Jesus talks about, you are the salt of the earth, what happens when your saltiness has been taken away? Um, and so this idea of placing salt on Moab because she's destroyed, uh, and to go on and to say her towns will be desolate, nobody will live there, because no crops are going to grow. There's, there's going to be nothing left and no reason to come back uh, because of this salting. Uh, that makes sense. Makes a little more sense to me than the wings. Um, I, I was really having a hard time uh, tracking down that reference to wings before.
0: A couple of thoughts there, Pastor El. One, in terms of the, the matter of salting cities, we actually see that happen in Judges chapter nine. That's not one of the most familiar chapters of the Bible, but Abimelech, he, he actually salts one of the cities that he conquers there in Judges chapter nine. And, and in terms of the just a, a brief comment on the Hebrew words, when there are, there are cases, both in Hebrew and in Greek, where there is a word that occurs just one time in the, in the entire either Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament— and it can be very difficult to know what those words are sometimes if we just don't have a lot of occurrences within the text. And and one of the ways that we we do go about you know, trying to figure those things out is by looking at, well, what does how is it used elsewhere in either Hebrew and Greek and wider literature? Uh, what's the context there within the verse in which it's used in the scriptures? And what are maybe related languages? That's often uh, one of the ways that this happens in in the Hebrew particularly is looking at related languages to Hebrew at the time and and maybe similar consonants and how those are used just as maybe to to assure anyone we're not just guessing on those words entirely there are ways of making a good it guesses just as a further comment on that
1: yeah, I may have spoken a little bit, a little bit hastily and imprecisely. I didn't mean to uh, to give anybody concern. Uh, these are these aren't just well, I feel or I think kind of guesses. Right. But by looking at other languages, um, by looking at the context in the Bible and outside of the Bible, um, but one of the challenges that we face with Hebrew is uh, the Old Testament was written over the course of more than two thousand years, uh, and over the course of 2000 years, languages can change a great deal. And some words that get used sometimes aren't always used other times. And when you have a really broad vocabulary that spans 2000 years, some of those words are going to come and go. And they're just not familiar to us uh, 2500 years later on the other side of the world where we don't use ancient Hebrew anymore. Modern Hebrew is a wonderful language, but it's it's developed a little bit uh, since the first century AD. So
0: hmm.
1: it's a little bit different. Uh, that's not to say that, uh, that scholars and theologians and pastors don't look very, very carefully at these things. Uh, but it is to say, um, sometimes sometimes it's complicated, and we don't always have as much uh, Certainty in the language, as we wish we did. That's why we get to, you know, in one place it translates "give wings to Moab," and in another place it says "put salt on Moab." And you start to wonder, well, well, who are these guys that can't even agree on these definitions? It's it's not for a lack of trying or for um, uh, any kind of laziness or anything like that. It's simply uh, some of these words have fallen out of usage and we're making the very best uh, educated um, assumptions we can about these words.
0: That's right. That was, that was a very good explanation there, Pastor L. And, and certainly, I mean, this is an example of that. Right now, here at Grace, we're studying the Book of Psalms in our Sunday morning Bible class, and you know, there's several of those what are often called liturgical or musical terms that go untranslated within the Book of Psalms because, as, as you said, we just don't know what those words mean right now. We have a general idea based on the context, but that's just the way language works. So, well, well said, Pastor L. Thank you, uh, Pastor L. We've got about five minutes, and we've we've talked about a lot of things here, particularly in the text. Text in 47 and the first part of 48. As we think about these texts and, you know, what do we do with these as Christians today? I think at the very beginning of our study, you mentioned Luke 13 and, and Jesus' words there about disaster and how that calls us to repentance. And, and knowing, as these chapters say, that, you know, the Lord is the Lord of history, the Lord over all nations, that that these things that are happening in the 600s, 500s BC are not an accident. How how do we, and taking that in concert with what Jesus says in Luke 13 and, and other places in the scriptures that speak to this, this matter, how do we take that today when, when we see, you know, the way the world is going and, and all these things and we've got questions, what what do we do with these texts today?
1: That's a really important question. And there's kind of a fine line that we can end up walking sometimes when we say, when bad things happen, God allows them to happen. There are even places in scripture when bad things happen and God says, I caused that to happen. And that makes us really uncomfortable. We don't want to think about God causing bad things to happen. But there are times that that's what scripture says is God says, yeah, I caused this. Uh, Just like he's saying the destruction of Philistia and the destruction of Moab, I caused it where he will say when his people in Judah and in Jerusalem are taken into exile, yes, I did this to judge you. Um, And that does make us uncomfortable. But scripture reminds us that when bad things happen, we are to repent so that nothing worse would happen to us. Uh, It doesn't always clearly say why this happened or why God is doing this. Um, I know there are times when, uh, say, there's a storm or a natural disaster when people will say, well, this happened because um, of this or that. I remember when, uh, say, Hurricane Katrina hit uh, the Gulf Coast and New Orleans in, uh, well, it's been it's been a few years ago now. People came out and said, oh, that happened because the Lord was punishing the sins of Mardi Gras. Um, and I'm I'm not very quick. In fact, I'm I'm really hesitant to say we know why God did this or that. God doesn't always tell us why he does something. But when there's a storm, when there's a sickness or a plague or a pandemic, when someone is diagnosed with cancer, or when something else terrible happens, we, we simply recognize we are called to repent. We're not in charge. The Lord himself is. And so uh, we repent, we confess our sins and our sinfulness, and we remember that the Lord strengthens those that he has called his own. Um, There's not really any room or any place to think about uh, God has forgotten us. Uh, Sometimes we, we would like to think about God forgetting us, or maybe God doesn't remember that he loves us, but that's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Even in scripture, when God says that he will punish the Moabites and the uh, the Philistines and the people of Judah, he also comes back and reminds them that he is the Lord their God. Uh, And the Lord certainly hasn't forgotten you, even as you go through difficult things. He has remembered you so much that he has sent his one and only son into the flesh to suffer to die, to rise again, and to rule over all things, to rescue you from sin and from tragedy by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't sound at all like a God who is forgetful or a God who doesn't care. That is a God who acts. Even in tragedy, when you have been called to repentance, he acts, delivering to you the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting that only he can bring. He brings this to you from outside of you, and uh, it is a, once again, a call against idolatry. Uh, When bad things happen, Chemosh and Dagon can't help you. You yourself, or anything else that you might look to apart from the Lord your God, can't help you. But you are rescued and saved in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ."
0: Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt Illinois, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 1 through 48, verse 10. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you so much. Blessings to you and to all of our listeners.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.